In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, I mean, today is the last Sunday of the Coptic year. And the last two Sundays of the Coptic year are always reserved to speak about the end of the world, the second coming of Christ, and the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Last week, we read from the Gospel of St. Mark about the account or the discourse about the end of times. And this morning, we read from the account of St. Matthew. And in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the, the discourse, the, the conversation that takes place about the end of the world is the final of five major or significant discourses that take place in the Gospel of St. Matthew. Every Gospel has a certain character and structure, and St. Matthew's Gospel is structured around a series of long discourses. The most um, familiar one to us, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. One long discourse um, about some of the most beautiful evangelical teachings of our Lord. So in a sense, um, we could call this uh, the um, eschatological discourse. The word eschatological simply means the things referring to the last days or the last things, the final, the final things. So just um, before this final discourse of St. Matthew's Gospel, the Lord laments over Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he begins this discourse about the end of the world. Now, what's the connection with what he's saying here and why is it important for us to sort of begin our reflection together? is that Christ is making a very clear connection between himself, his earthly existence and his earthly departure, and the fate of the world, and the events leading to the end of the world. He wants to say to, to his listeners and to each of us that what is happening with him is central to what will happen for the whole world. And, and we will see that this is the theme, uh, or one of the significant themes about this discourse is the centrality of who Christ is in the, in the meaning of the existence and fulfillment and goal of all reality. But of course, more importantly, not only is he connecting his own destiny with the destiny of the world, he is here, but he is gone, but he is coming. And again, tying that presence and departure and, and, and return to the destiny of the world but he is saying to the disciples and to all of us how we should um, sort of behave and adorn ourselves and, and, and live our life between his two comings, between his first coming in his incarnation and his second coming. And of course, we might sort of lose this cent the centrality of this message and a lot of the, um, the doom and gloom sort of um, language about you know, the sort of the, uh, the elements melting and the persecutions and the false Christs and the deceptions and the hatred and the hearts that are growing cold and all of these things, uh, when we read them, they instill a certain fear and maybe even anxiety in us as Christians. And to some extent, it is what it is, right? To some extent, we have to be aware of the reality of the end of the world and not sort of brush it under the, the rug as if it's not central to what it means to the, our Christian faith. 
the, again, th this is one of the major discourses in the Gospel of St. Matthew, and so therefore it is something that Christ deems to be very central to the disciples' lives and to their, um, and, and to especially their lives after he departs from them. So the backdrop of this conversation, <clears throat> where is it taking place? Again, Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and behind them in the, as they are communicating, as they're dis having this discussion, is the massive temple, the wonderful temple uh, of the Jews. Um, St. Matthew says, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And again, it's very significant what St. Matthew is saying here. First, Jesus departs from the temple. There's, there's a hidden meaning in that departure from the temple. Something is being changed. Something is being transformed. Something is going from old to new, from his departure from the temple. But also, the disciples are sort of saying, Lord, look at how magnificent this temple is. Like, they, you know, when you want to see something, you know, you have to kind of step back from it so that you can really sort of adore it from a distance. So that's kind of what's, what's happening. The disciples are, are, are saying to the Lord, look, Lord, at the, at this, the magnificence of, of, the, of this temple. And Jesus basically takes that image and he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And so again, what is, what is he emphasizing at the beginning of this discourse is that there is a big change that's going to take place in the world. And everything that is magnificent and beautiful and powerful and impressive will be torn down. And everything that we think is important and everything that we think is indestructible, right, will be torn down. I don't know, some of the young people here may not um, have witnessed sort of live on TV as many of us did the, uh, the, um, the Twin Towers on 9-11. And I think that feeling that any of us had either watching it live or, or seeing it over and over and over again on, on the TV screens was that how? How can these two massive structures within a split second become dust? And, 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 we, and you know, we would replay and replay and we just, we couldn't sort of wrap ourselves around that reality. And, and that's what sort of the Lord is saying, you know, we have to be, we have to sort of begin to have that vision of, of, of you know, what's real, what's, what is truly indestructible, what is temporal and what's lasting. This majestic temple that was the sort of the, the, the pride of the Jewish people would be destroyed completely in 70 AD, just a few years after the Lord spoke these words. And that's why you find sort of in these eschatological discourses or these uh, sermons about the end times, Christ is sort of weaving back and forth between the end of the world and the destruction of the temple. And you, you kind of, you feel like you're a little bit lost. Like, is he talking about the, end, the destruction of the temple or is he talking about the end of the world? And he's talking about both because they're related. The first is a sort of image and precursor of what will happen to everything that we consider to be sort of indestructible and a symbol of a symbol of, of what is important to us, a symbol of what is real to us. 
And, and when he speaks of what is lasting, he's not simply pointing to some um, sort of distant world. But he's saying that what is eternal is already present in his body. That's why he, throughout the Gospels, he speaks about the body of his temple. He says, destroy this temple and I will what, rebuild it in what? Three days. But he was referring to what, the body, which is, the temple, which is his body. So he's saying that the, the true temple, the true eternal habitation of God, and that which is real, that which is truly indestructible, is present before you, and you don't recognize it. And yet you turn your attention from what is real to what it will be destroyed within seconds, what will become dust with just a command. And so this is sort of the real, I think, again, don't, we, we don't want to get lost in the doom and gloom and, and, and you know, we want to understand what is Christ's central message to us. Okay. And so, again, it's beautiful that Matthew, the, um, the evangelist, he ties this with the gospel, or with the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the first discourse, right? So, in the sermon uh, just now, the, what we call it, we, what we're calling the eschatological discourse, it says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him, and Jesus answered and said to them. That sounds very familiar, right? At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, he says, he went up on a mountain, and when, his when he was seated, his, what, his disciples came to him, then he opened his mouth and taught them. It's almost verbatim. Right? It's almost as if Matthew is saying, there are two very important sermons. What is the difference between them? Right? The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is about the interior life. Blessed are the, the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, are the, uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure. Right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who, who do evil to you. Forgive Go into your inner room and pray. Shut the door. Fast without letting anybody know that you're fasting. Right? All of these teachings are about how do we, how do we change this, this temple from the inside? How do we take on the character of Christ? How do we, how do we resemble him? And then the second discourse, or the last discourse, again, he's on a mount. He's... His disciples come to him, he opens his mouth and teaches them, and now he's telling them sort of about the exterior world and how they are to sort of deal with external circumstances. External circumstances. Whatever they might be, persecutions, slander, hatred, uh, death, destruction, false uh, prophets, uh, this deceit, right? So. The first one he says, you have to become like me from the inside. The second one he says, what will you do when the world around you is crumbling? What will you do when the world around you hates you? What will you do when the world around you tries to trick you and deceive you? How will you handle it? Right. And if you think about it, our, our Christian life, in a sense, could be redu reduced to these two important solemn teachings, who we are on the inside and how we deal with everything happening in our daily life, whether it's the mundane things that we deal with every day, 
or whether it's persecution or whether it's the end of the world and the and the uh, sort of the, again the, the melting away of the elements of the of the sky and all of them the same question is asked how will we respond what strength will we have that's why it's interesting that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like what? The man who built his house on the rock. And when the storm comes and when the winds blow, that house will stand because it was built on the rock. Right? When the interior life is built on the rock, when, it, when, when, when the interior life resembles Christ and puts on Christ, then when the storm comes and the winds come and everything comes to beat on that, that house, right, it will stand. But if, you, if he says, but whoever hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like the man who built his house, what, on the sand. It will just dissolve very quickly. So what are the four themes then? <clears throat> so at, at the heart then of what Christ is saying is that it's his presence. <clears throat> it's his presence in the deepest sort of recesses of our being, each one of us, that will guarantee that we will, s we, that we will successfully uh, endure and persevere through whatever the world um, throws at us. So what are the four themes that, that sort of come up over and over again in these discourses? The four themes are what he calls the parousia, or his second coming, the end of the age, the rejection, the violent rejection of the world and scandals, and sort of um, the, the temporal kingdom, the temporal kingdoms sort of versus the lasting and eternal kingdom. These are, these are the four sort of major themes that he speaks about in the sermon today. So what are, what are they? We'll just say them just so we have an understanding of, of their importance. The parousia, the word parousia in Greek simply means coming. So the second coming of Christ, the parousia, it's, it's his first coming, of course, he says, or he showed us was, hu was humble. He was born in a manger. Uh, he lived an obscure life. He, he resembled us. If you, if you pricked his hand, he would bleed, just like any one of us. If you crucified him, he would die. So the first coming was sort of hidden and humble, but what Christ says about the second coming is that it will be undeniable. His second coming, not just his coming in glory and power, but no one will be able to deny who he is. Nobody will be able to deny the, the fulfillment that is, that is taking place when he comes. It, will be, it, will be, it won't be something that people will have to choose. They will have already chosen, perhaps, to accept or reject, but it will be undeniable in his coming who he is and that he is the, 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 the Alpha and the Omega. There will be no doubt left. So unlike his first coming where, where there was doubt and there was people who didn't understand and people who couldn't see that he was the Son of God, but in his second coming it will be undeniable. The second point you said was, the, and that's not necessarily, this is not in chron chronological order, but the end of the age. And again, what's important there is not just to focus on the, that the world will be destroyed. That's not the point. The point is that the world will, will achieve its goal. There's a big difference. 
everything has a goal in creation. It, what we call the, the sort of the, the telos, the, the, what, what is it that we're sort of moving towards? Everything is moving towards something. Some people, of course, who don't believe would say that we're, we're not really moving towards anything. We just, we just we move to non-existence. We, we move to death and, we, and that's the end of existence and reality. But what Christ is saying is that the end of the world is not just, again, this horror uh, movie, you know, and, and to sort of frighten us and to, to say, this is how God is going to punish the world. That's not, it's not about punishment. It's about fulfillment. It's about he is coming in order to transform the old to the new. He is coming to give us that which we have been hoping for and living for. It, it really doesn't make sense for us as Christians to, to live a Christian life without that sense of what we're living it for. It's not just, you know, to be good people in this world. But everything that we do, the reason why we, we, we take the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, is because it's sort of the seed of, of that eternal glory that's going to be fulfilled. I mean, we, we are longing for it. We are looking for it, as we say in the creed. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. This is what we're living for. Our goal as Christians is not to prolong the world. Again, we don't, we don't, of course, damage or destroy the world. We don't hurt the world. But, but our goal is to look forward to the transformation of the world. And that's something positive, not something negative. The third theme was the, the rejection of the world. Right? He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So deceit, persecutions, betrayals, scandals, lawlessness, hatred, killing. This will be, unfortunately, the reality as the, as the world sort of moves away from its temporal nature to its eternal fulfillment. There's sort of, you know, <laughs> I think I've maybe given this analogy before, there's, uh, um, when you go fishing, when you go deep sea fishing, and you, and you catch, the, you know, um, some of these large, like a marlin or, a, you know, a 200-pound tuna, you fight it for 30, 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, you fight this fish, and little by little, you wear out the fish until you bring him just, just to the surface of the water, and you feel like, that's it, he's done, I got him. And then th these fish do one final sort of nosedive, they go straight down to the bottom with all of their might, with all of their power, with every like final breath, with every final ounce of strength, they make one final sprint straight down. And you, you say, what? You know, but then that's it. Then all of a sudden they give up. And then you just, you just bring them to the surface and that's, um, that's sort of a, a, an image of what the world will do. The world is, is, is going to resist as it clings to what's temporal, as it clings to the mighty kingdoms of this world, as it clings to its own desire for power and abuse and lordship over one another, as it clings to its own ideas about how to make the perfect and lasting world, as it clings to all of these false notions, again, sort of clinging on to the temple, as we said in the beginning, as it clings to all of these things, it's going to make one final sort of nosedive and intensify all of its powers. That's what he's talking about. And he says, and many will be led away. 
That means, that means people who are following him. Many will be led away are not the unbelievers, but it's the believers. Why? Why will many be led away? It's a, that's perhaps the frightening thing for us to ask. Why, why might I be the one who will be led away? Maybe, maybe he knows that his long absence in the flesh with, with time will sort of grind away at their memory and allow this sort of indifference to uh, rise up within them. Um, perhaps we will, again, just sort of get caught up being pulled in all of these attractive images of other temples, other magnificent ideas, right? All other wonderful leaders. We put our hope in certain politicians or world leaders or ideas or technologies or whatever it is, we get excited. We say, maybe this is the answer. Maybe this is where my happiness is. Maybe this is how we, we build this wonderful international community in which everybody will be at peace. I will follow that. And it just slowly, slowly, it's not drastic, but it slowly starts to pull us away from the memory of Christ, from the memory of the last things. So that's why many will be led astray, because they will forget, and they will be enticed. And that enticement will happen little by little, over time. And then he says the fourth one is these international conflicts and catastrophes. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And he speaks of these things as, and, and not in the translation that we read, but in many of the other translations where it says this is the beginning of sorrows. The other translations say this will be the beginning of birth pains. And that's, I think, a more accurate uh, translation. You know when, a, of course, many of you know, I don't know, but you who gave birth, right, you know the sorrow and the pain that precedes the joy and the birth, right? You, you know more than, than any of us would, will ever understand, us men, of course, who never become mothers, um, this image of birth pains, this image of, of, of just this, the most intense pain and sorrow and just that anticipation. And then in a split second, it becomes joy and happiness and peace. And so, Christ is saying all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. So they're just the birth pains. Don't focus on the, the pain. Don't focus, don't focus on, 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 again, the catastrophes and the kingdoms falling. But look towards the birth, the new birth. And again, why, he says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Why? Why is that necessary? Why must, why must there, there be sort of, again, this, this intense cataclysmic um, event? And the, the answer is, is actually more simple than we think because there is only one light. Right? The sun and the moon were created to give light. But when the true light comes, the sun and the moon will bow down. The sun and the moon will make a prostration before the, the one true light who is coming. The stars from heaven will all kneel before him. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I'm going to, again, punish the world with all of these scary things. He's saying when I come, even the sun and the moon will be shaken. 
they serve me. Because that's why immediately after that, he talks about, and he will send forth his angels and a great, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. They are his angels. When Christ comes, people will see he is the Lord of the angels. They bow down and worship him. They serve him. He will send them to the corners of the world to gather his elect. So what he's saying here is that everything will bow down. The, the, the temporal kingdoms will make one final ditch effort to maintain power and to uh, present their image of, of, of humanity, of, of, of sort of happy humanity. The, the sun and the moon and the stars, all of them, everything will crumble before the true light, the one true star, the, 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 um, the true sun, the son of righteousness, as he's called in the scriptures. The son of righteousness. When he comes, everything will give way. And so it'll be a beautiful thing. It won't be, yes, it, it will be awesome, as we say, awesome and full of glory, awesome. And, and the word awesome can mean frightening and terrible. But it will be, again, the birth pains. When we see these things, we will look and we will say, the new birth is here. That which I have been waiting for has come. Come, Lord Jesus. This was Maran Atta. That's what the early Christians would often repeat. Maran Atta. Lord Jesus, come. They, weren't, they, weren't they didn't want it delayed. They, were, they wanted it to be now. Lord Jesus, come. And then he says, but he who, who endures to the end will be saved. So again, what is, what, is, what is that he's giving the disciples in this final discourse? He's saying, in the beginning, I spoke to you about the interior life, about what it means to, to, to resemble me from the inside, to have the heart of Christ. But now also prepare yourself for the things that will happen on the outside. And so he says, learn from the fig tree. He ends the gospel today with, learn from the fig tree. And so he gives this parable about sort of observing something in nature. And he says, like, when you see something in nature, you know what it means. And so he's telling us to, to use nature as a parable. In other words, he's saying everything in the world is pointing to him. The fig tree, he's saying, if you, if you observe the fig tree and, and how it sort of develops its leaves and fruits and so on, you can discern. So he says, if what he wants to say is not so much to just focus on the fig tree, but he's saying, if in the fig tree you can discern, then in everything in your life you can discern my presence and my, and my, and my love and my mercy and my, my, my message to the world. If we, if we open our eyes, every one of us is a, is a sort of sign. We have to be a sign to the world. I w um, I remember last week when I was, I was covering at another parish, we were speaking about some of these same themes. Um, I, maybe, I don't know if I related this story to you before, but many, many years ago, like at the beginning of my priesthood, I was, I was in the grocery store by myself, and I was, um, I was, I was in the, um, the vegetables, you know, um, produce section. And I see this elderly woman, woman coming to me from the other side of the of that section of the store, and I could tell she was, for sure, you know, over 90 years old, and 
as we began to talk, she, she told me that she was over 90 years old. And she, she simply, she came to me and she said, she said, hi, Father. He's, she said, I just want to say that seeing you today reminded me that I need to go back to church. So I, I sort of, um, you know, laughed with her and I said, well, that's why I came. I came today to remind you to go back to church. And then, I, then she, she, was, she was a bit serious. So she started to relate to me how she had lost two of her children throughout her life. She had outlived two of her children, which, of course, is the most difficult cross for any person to bear in life, to outlive your children. And she said, for many years, I was bitter. I was angry, and I stopped going to church. And she said, but you know what? I need to go back. I need to make my peace with God. And she, you know, that's when she told me how old she was, and she realized that her, you know, her, her days were few. And I said, wow. I was, I was so touched. Of course, I, didn't, I had nothing. To, I mean, yes, I was wearing something that made me stand out as a priest. But it, was, it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't that I approached this woman and started speaking to her and preaching to her the gospel. I did no such thing. I was trying to, you know, find some broccoli. But, but, but I, I thought to myself, I said, you know, how important it is for us to just sort of be a sign. Now, maybe as a priest, it's easier to be that sign, for good or for bad, in public. People see me, and, and maybe, you know, in many cases, people will come up and ask for prayers. They'll ask for a blessing. They'll, they'll just want to talk. Some people will come up and they just start crying and they start sharing pains in their life. It's, it's one of the most beautiful things of, of, of being a sort of a public servant in that sense. But perhaps also it, it repels others. Perhaps other people look and, and they mock and they perhaps are disgusted by whatever it, whatever it might be. In, in any case, it, it forces the person to sort of think of what I stand for, what I resemble, what I symbolize. But each one of us has to, to do that in their own way. You have to be a sign in this world for the kingdom. Whether, again, as St. Paul says, you know, we are the fragrance of Christ. You can't avoid being a fragrance, is what St. Paul is saying. He says, to some, we will be the fragrance of life leading to life. And to others, we will breathe the fragrance of death leading to death. That's what Christ was. Christ was a, what Simeon said to, to St. Mary, that he will be a sign of contradiction. To some, he will be the sign that points to life and eternity. But to others, the, his very presence will, will invoke in them a hatred and a rejection, and they will crucify him. And, and we can't escape that. To escape that is to sort of deny our identity as Christians. And that's what Christ is, is telling the disciples, is that I'm leaving. As I was a sign of contradiction in the world, you have to remain a sign of contradiction in the world. You have to remain a symbol of my presence. The church, of course, as an institution, as a, as a body, through the sacraments, is, that, is, of course, is that sign. But each one of us in the grocery store, in our workplaces, at home, has to be a sign. And so finally, the Lord speaks about, again, two qualities throughout his, his discourse, urgency and peace. Urgency 
and peace. They're recurring themes as he speaks about these things. Don't delay preparing. Don't delay building your house on the rock. Don't delay establishing yourself daily with the remembrance of Christ through prayer, through sacraments, through reading the scriptures, through reading about the lives of the saints, through, through, through all of the things that will prepare you for that day. Whether that day is the end of the world and all of these sort of, again, cataclysmic events, or whether that day is your own end of the world and my own end of the world, which Archie spoke about last week. Either one requires us today to, to have that solid foundation. If we don't, if we delay it, we will, be, we will be, each one of us, including many of us clergy, we will be those who have been led astray. We will follow false Christs. The false Christ will not be obvious. They will come with signs. They will come with messages of peace and love. They will come with, with a very beautiful package. They're not going to be obviously something to reject. On the contrary, they're going to present themselves as some, the Antichrist will present himself as somebody who will unite all of us very harmoniously, very beautifully. It will be the most beautiful package he will offer humanity. So unless we are established in the faith and in that relationship with Christ, we will be lost. May our Lord Jesus Christ, in his second coming, fill us now with that preparation, that endurance, and that peace to receive him, whether he comes at the end of times or whether he comes to us individually in our own departure from this world, and to him be all glory now and ever into the ages of ages. Amen.